wanted to let you know um, tonight some news that happened today, and that's that um, President Bush announced that they've begun bombing in Afghanistan. It's been um, military um, places that they've bombed, but it has started today. So we wanted you to have that news and to just be aware of how, you f how your body and your mind and heart are feeling in this moment, and to use your practice to hold and support that with compassion. And perhaps we could have a few moments of silence and send our energies of loving-kindness and compassion to balance some of these negative energies in the world. And to let you know that we'll be having a loving-kindness meditation at 9.30 tonight. Oh, sorry, 9 o'clock. And that as I continue to talk this evening, to allow whatever feelings are coming and going, sensations that are coming and going, At the beginning of the millennium, which seems a long time ago, the Dalai Lama was asked to talk about the increase in war and violence and defense spending. And this is what he said. If we are to change this trend, we must seriously consider the concept of nonviolence, which is the physical expression of compassion. In order to make nonviolence a reality, we must first work on internal disarmament, ridding ourselves of the negative emotions that result in violence. So I'd like to talk tonight about internal disarmament, about how we disarm our own internal atomic bombs. We may not have the answers to ending violence in the world, but we can begin to look at and understand it in ourselves. The human mind has amazing capabilities we've discovered, invented, created, amazing things over the centuries, and yet we haven't really made any progress in learning how to get along with each other. When we look inwards, when we look at our minds as we've been doing these last few days, what we see is a constant evaluating, comparing, judging, of ourselves, others, our environment. This is boring. I'm restless. I can't stand tempe. I hate the line in the dining hall. And on and on. We take credit when it's pleasant. 
as Philip was saying this morning. We think it's good. And we blame ourselves when it's unpleasant or we blame the situation. We see how quickly we move from the simple experience of unpleasant, pleasant and neutral into wanting an aversion and doubting. And our clear seeing is obscured by these difficult energies or hindrances that move, move through our minds. We get so frequently caught in them. And our practice shines a light on them. This is from Stephen Levine. It's called Meditation Blues. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. Cold self-interest, insistent fear and judgment, whispered insults, vengeful fantasies, triumph and despair. A conditioned unfolding, so impersonal, we take it personally. Sometimes aghast at the casual cruelty of even minor fears and celebrations. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. And sometimes it stays broken long enough to touch even this pain with love. Sometimes the mercy washes even Lady Macbeth's hands, turns tragedy to grace, and makes it all worthwhile. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. So the judging, comparing mind is inherent in our society. Life is made up of contrasts. It's not the contrasts that are the problem. It's the comparing, the evaluating, the reaction to the comparing. And this comparing seems to come from a really deep feeling of not good enough, of not having enough, not being enough. The need to be seen, the need for approval, the need to be special. Approval is a form of judgment too. It encourages a constant striving and we can spend our lives searching for it, trying to fix ourselves so that we can be who we think will be approved of. We try to get it right. And we end up putting on masks and not trusting who we really are. As Mary was saying last night, and yet these masks take us further and further from our Buddha nature. As Lily Tomlin says, the thing about winning the rat race is that you're still a rat. (laughs) (laughs) So comparing And striving never brings peace because it's endless. And until we can let go of the hope that there's someone better to be, somewhere better to be, and someone better to be with, 
we'll never relax with who we actually are or where we are. Abhirupa Nanda, who was one of the first Buddhist women, said, get rid of the tendency to judge yourself above, below, or equal to others. How do we do that? It isn't so easy to cultivate this state of non-judging attention when it seems to be the nature of our minds to judge and compare and to fix. The place we begin is to slow down enough to notice how it's happening, what's happening in each moment. Not causing harm to ourselves and to others requires bringing the light of mindfulness to our negative emotions, being curious about them rather than condemning. What does it feel like in the body when there's anger? Can we experience tightness or contraction in the chest? When there's fear, is there tightness in the gut or the throat? What do all these feelings show us about these negative emotions? Where are they in the body? It helps to really ground in the body and experience them just as they are. Remembering that mindfulness is this mirror-like attention. All it does is reflect what it sees. Doesn't add anything, doesn't have an opinion about anything. Simply shows us what's actually there. And we see as we pay careful attention to these negative states that they have a lifespan of their own, that they come in waves and they pass. And we can see how it is that we fuel them, how we, make, how we can fan the flames. And we see how mindfulness causes them to begin to dissolve. This is a very simple story about my son. When he was very small and I was driving him home from school, he suddenly announced that he was dying of thirst and it was rush hour traffic, but he said we had to stop and get a pop. And instantly arose in my mind a lot of judging and aversion about how pop is bad for you anyway, and um, I didn't want to stop and find a parking place. But I saw it, I caught myself before I opened my mouth. I remembered mindfulness. And I said to him, well, how big is your wanting? It's as big as a bus, it's huge, it's enormous. Well, what does it feel like? My throat is parched, I'm going to die of thirst if you don't stop, this is terrible. And on and on. Really, really getting into the wanting. And so we drove on for a little while and he continued to um, rant about how this was terrible, he was dying of thirst. And then we passed something in the street and he started talking about it. And a little while later I said, how big is your wanting now? He said, oh, it's about as big as the car. So we continued to drive, and then by the time we got home, he ran into the house, started playing with Lego, and never even stopped for a drink. <laughs> and um, I really learned something. I saw that my aversion and judgment of his wanting would have made it worse. Also, I saw that it made my experience of it worse. And when I could allow the wave of wanting to get as big as it was going to get, 
it had its own life history. It ended without him having to fulfill it or, or feed it. And when we can allow the wanting and allow the aversion in this way to get as big as they get, we don't get driven by them in the same way, without giving in to them. We don't get driven by them. And there's space then to see clearly. And we see that we don't have to contain it. Sometimes we have this sense that our difficult emotions have to be contained within this body. But they're not containable. The wanting wasn't personal. My aversion to it wasn't personal. And by allowing it to take up as much space as it needed, it got to pass through. It didn't get stuck. When we feel we have to contain the pain, the grief, the anger, the hurt, it's very painful when we identify with it. And it's possible gradually to allow more space for it to pass through, however large it is. And that's not that we don't feel it on the way through. We allow that too. And we start to notice the quality of our paying attention. When we're practicing, are we noting kindly? Or are we getting lost in recrimination and judgment? Very often we pay attention unkindly when things are unpleasant. It can be very subtle. Thoughts are bad. The wandering mind is bad. Being present is good. Feeling good about being present is bad. (laughs) So we see how we judge the judging. Sometimes it's so harsh we can feel shame about it. And then we react to the shame and we judge that. There's layers and layers. And what mindfulness does is it helps separate the layers out. And we see that the judging, the aversion, the greed, all those things are just habitual conditions of the mind. It's just the mind doing its thing. It's like you're turning a wheel and all these judgments are pouring out. It's not what we are. It's just judging. And when we can be less identified with it, there's no blame, both to the wandering mind and the judging of the wandering mind. It's simply, oh, I'm back. We also see how often judging is retroflective thinking. I'm a fearful person. Could simply be that I had fear a moment ago. Or fear was here a moment ago. She's an angry person. Maybe she was angry last night. Sometimes who we are is a statement about who we were. And when we identify with and believe our judgments in this way, it's very painful. And we've been doing it for so long, most of us, that we believe it's part of our nature or part of others' nature. Or we project it outwards and we see certain races or certain people, 
a certain way based on those habitual conditioned reactions of mind. And we've forgotten that it's just mind stuff. It's not who we or they are. Comparative mind doesn't go away very easily. In fact, it's one of the last things to go in enlightenment. So it isn't going to go away these 10 days. But what hurts us most is that we believe it. We identify with it. And that creates separation from others. And it creates self-hatred. Carl Rogers said that most people despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. And the Dalai Lama was very puzzled by this concept because, as many of you know, in Tibet, self-hatred is very rare. And so it's not an intrinsic part of human nature. It's something that we've learned. It's not something that we're born with and that's irrevocable. The Dalai Lama believes that all of us have underneath, underlying a self-love, and that we can counteract these feelings of self-contempt by reminding ourselves that no matter how much we may dislike some of our characteristics or some of other people's characteristics, underneath it all, we all wish for our own happiness. We wish that for ourselves. So the Dalai Lama's antidote for judging, for criticality, is to reflect on the fact that all beings, including ourselves, have Buddha nature, the seed or potential for perfection. No matter what their situation, no matter how they might appear, all of us have that potential. And as the Buddha said, what the mind dwells upon frequently, to that it will naturally incline. So when it inclines towards judging and hatred and harshness, that's what it begets. As it says in the Dhammapada, hatred never ceases by hatred. Through our practice, we can begin to shift how the mind inclines. We can nurture the seeds of kindness, of respect, of compassion, and trust. Tuku Ergen said, the supreme method to become quickly at home with our true nature is love and compassion. <coughs> so loving kindness practice to ourselves and to others is a really powerful way to sow and to nurture these seeds of kindness rather than of striving and comparing and hating. To open our hearts to include all of ourselves, even the darkest corners, with acceptance. And this isn't that it's an attempt to dismiss the dark side while pretending that everything and everyone is nice. That's delusion. It's clear seeing, seeing it all, being honest about what's true. 
embracing it with patience and kindness, even to our unkindness. As you know from these past few days, it can be very hard to send loving kindness to ourselves, never mind to others, because we come up against stuff that we don't like. And as each of us have said, it's a purification process. Saying the phrases releases these difficult negative emotions. And our tendency often is to try and get rid of them or to think that we're doing the practice wrong. But each time we buy into disapproval, we're practicing disapproval. Each time we buy into harshness, we're practicing harshness. And we become expert as the human species at harming ourselves and others. Jung said, those parts of you that you do not accept will become hostile to you. So if, as these difficult things come up, instead of pushing them away, we can be mindful of them, include them with kindness, neither judging them, nor rejecting them, nor indulging them, we see that they begin to move away. We don't create more unpleasantness around them. When we push them down, when we attack them or identify with them, the purification can't take place and the negative stuff stays inside. It can accumulate and we can re-traumatize ourselves. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. So we can actually be glad when unpleasant states keep coming up in our meditation practice. By having loving kindness for the wretched creatures that we lock away inside us, we're opening the door of the prison. We're letting them go, releasing them out of compassion rather than a desire to get rid of them. We're developing a willingness to feel, embrace, and to treat kindly these hard places. When we can be with them just as they are, with compassion for them, and see that they're impermanent and they're impersonal, they release and we gradually become lighter. It takes energy to hold them in the prison. So what do we mean by compassion? Karuna, as it's called. It's courageous love. The Dalai Lama refers to it as a state of mind that's non-harming, non-aggressive, based on a wish for ourselves and others to be free from suffering. There's a sense of commitment and responsibility and respect towards ourselves and others. It's not a passive thing. Without compassion, we can't open to the suffering in the world without becoming overwhelmed. Often when we begin to face the world's pain, face our own pain, we contract. It's a natural thing, we contract. We want to push it away, not see it, not feel it. Perhaps we feel we, it feels hopeless that there's nothing we can do, or that it's unbearable. 
But when we contract and we push it away, we're using up energy. And that leads to depression and more hopelessness. Or we become self-critical and overwhelmed. We wall ourselves off from our own hearts in this way. And as Ayakima says, if the heart doesn't open, the wisdom of the Dharma cannot enter. So compassion asks us to hold pain with tenderness without trying to fix it or get rid of it. To unconditionally be open to all of life, the most terrible and the most beautiful. So just for a moment, let your eyes close. And if you want, repeat to yourself the traditional phrase of compassion, which is, I care about my pain, or I care about the world's pain. Even knowing I can't fix it, I care about the pain. Holding yourself in your own heart. Not needing to contain what isn't containable. Allowing whatever feelings there are to arise fully and pass through. I care about the pain. Opening our hearts in this way, releasing the contractions, allowing just to the extent that we can, frees the energy. And there's a spontaneous loosening of stuck places, of fear and of holding. And the clinging and the grasping starts to drop away so that the suffering in our hearts can be transformed little by little. Compassion is a purifier in the heart, transforms hatred to love, greed to generosity, delusion to clarity, so that out of our pain can come new growth, new possibilities. Internal disarmament means seeing the truth. Seeing the truth of the anger in ourselves, the pain, the grief, the greed, all these things, and seeing how ephemeral they are and unsolid. They're not who we are. And the boundaries start to dissolve, and our interconnectedness deepens.
compassion and mindfulness are very connected and they form the ground of clear seeing and of not causing harm. Compassion fully understands what pain is about. And mindfulness, rather than seeing the mind states, such as anger or greed, as bad, simply sees them as states of suffering. When I first began to see greed and hatred and in myself, delusion was easy, I've always known I'm deluded, but um, when I began to see my own greed, really see it, and my own inner violence, and really see it, I was horrified. And then I began to see that it wasn't about being good or evil. It was simply the nature and condition of being human. It's the realm we live in. And that through our practice, through being present with mindfulness and compassion, through allowing it and releasing it, really witnessing it and acknowledging it, that wisdom and clarity begin to naturally arise. Our true state begins to arise naturally when we can fully see and witness and release. So in this way, being present with compassion is very healing. And it means being present without having any agenda of what should happen. And at the same time, we guide the unfolding so it doesn't get stuck. And it's knowing when to refrain. So in a way, if mindfulness and compassion and respect are the ground, refraining is the path. We don't have to pick it up. When, when critical tape number nine starts off in your head again, do we have to listen again? Um, some months ago, I was teaching a retreat. It was here. Yeah, it was here. And um, there was a woman who'd been having a lot of difficulty with self-judgment. And one day she was cutting vegetables in the kitchen. And one of the cooks came over and probably in a very kind way, told her that she should cut them in a different way. So she immediately felt, I did it wrong, nobody else got told to cut the vegetables differently except me, and she saw herself going into this spin. And suddenly, she said to herself, I don't have to go there. She said it was amazingly freeing. She could stop that spiral that all her life she'd done when someone criticized her. There was a way, a different way. It was like she saw herself leaning to pick it up, and she refrained. Sometimes we find we've already picked it up, and we're dragged along by it. And if that happens, it's like holding on to a leash. We can let go. Sometimes it's hard to do that as well. And we may need to use the sword of compassion. And the sword of compassion isn't anger. It's not about aversion. It has a strength and a clarity to it. And it allows us to hold strength and vulnerability in one moment. So we say, enough, not now. I heard you already. I've seen you many times before. Not now almost as though you had a small child 
who is about to bite you or another child, and you simply say, we don't bite. And there's a clarity about it. It's just a very simple statement. This is not what we do. Many years ago, um, in the early years of my practice, um, I had very deep concentration, but not much else. Um, And I would see a lot of visual things. That's my particular practice. And at a certain point during the retreat, I would see these huge three-dimensional wasps. And they were in full color, and they moved. And they were about this big. And like they were really there. And it was really frightening to me. And I noticed that they would only appear when I'd been extremely self-critical and self-judging. And I began to associate them with self-hatred. And over the years, um, I began gradually to make friends with them and to actually touch them and finally to embrace them. And I saw that um, even though they were big and scary, I could have respect for them and an understanding that they came from a place of really deep pain for me, of my childhood, of abuse, and that I'd internalize them. And as I began to own them and claim them and embrace them, the power that they had disappeared. And so they, I hadn't seen them in a long time, (laughs) but I'm sure one day they'll visit me again. But it was just that fully allowing and owning, yeah, this is self-abuse. It's true. It's really sad that this is how I am and that this happened. Having compassion for it and allowing it. What they really needed was understanding and love and not judgment and shame. Cruelty is the far enemy of compassion, and it arises when we can't handle or feel the depth of pain, which was what was happening for me. We try to get rid of it by using the energy, often towards others, sometimes towards ourselves. We use the energy to strike out. Our feelings get projected because we can't handle them. It's too painful. But if we can begin to include it, it's just a mind state. It's just a state of suffering. It's not who I am. And we respond with compassion, and we remember our sort of compassion. I can't let you hurt me, even if it's towards ourselves. We're facing the truth with tenderness and saying, this too. Compassion doesn't condone cruelty at all, but it doesn't add to it either. When I first started practicing medicine more than 20 years ago, I was working in a community clinic, and a woman came to me. Um, I'd known her for a little while, and she revealed that she was abusing her children physically. And I was quite young, and I was horrified. And she could see that, and... um, she didn't come back. And I did, you know, the, the proper things that you're supposed to do. I informed the authorities about what was going on, but I knew that I'd failed her. 
What she'd really needed was for me to say, it's really overwhelming, isn't it? How can we work together so that you don't have to do this? So that I saw with respect, if she'd known another way, she wouldn't have done it. In that moment, she didn't. Often, when we're the most judging and angry and hurtful, is when we most need empathy. And that's usually when we're the least likely to get it. Um, So, sometimes in some situations, we need to give empathy to ourselves first. This is from the UN Secretary of some time ago, Dag Hammarskjöld. The more faithfully you listen to the voice within you, the better you will hear what is happening outside. The more skilled we become at giving ourselves empathy, the better we will be able to be present with another. So it takes courage and strength, wisdom and patience to own and to hold and to know these painful forces of greed, of hatred and of delusion without projecting them outward with blame and anger. And to have forgiveness when we can't do that. There's a story that um, I remembered um, this past weekend by Ursula Le Guin. It's called The Wizard of Earth Sea. Some of you have probably read it. And it's about a young wizard named Ged who is incredibly gifted. He's probably the greatest mage or wizard that has come, ever come, but he's very young and he's very willful. And in the school of wizardry that he is at, um, (coughs) there's another young man who taunts him and jibes him. And so Ged becomes filled with anger and jealousy and envy and hatred. And one day, as his power is growing and he's learning more and more things and he's reading from sacred books, one day the taunt just goes in a little deeper and he challenges the other young man to a duel. And in the duel, he does what he's been strictly forbidden to do. He tries to summon someone from the dead. And in doing so, he some kind of rupturing of the earth happens and he releases this awful spirit that attacks him. And because he used his powers in arrogance and hatred and envy, he's released this evil into the world. And so much of the story, he is pursued by this shadow, this darkness. And His power and his wisdom begin to grow as he flees, but finally he comes to the realization that he's never going to escape. And he takes the shape of a hawk, and he escapes to the dwelling place of his old master, Ogion, who tells him, you have to stop. You have to turn around and face it. You will never escape by running away from your fear. You're only fueling it. And so he says, well, if it defeats me, 
It will use all my powers for evil in the world. What, what can I do? But he realizes that the only way is to try. And so he turns around and summoning all his courage, he begins the hunt, to hunt the hunter. And he calls on the help of a friend who he had known to come go with him. So he has Sangha. <laughs> and eventually, after many, many months of fleeing to the ends of the ocean, he calls on and he meets this shadow, this being that's the embodiment of evil. And as it turns to face him, these not, they're standing on the water by now <laughs> through magic, as it turns to face him, he and the shadow both say the name Ged. And he embraces it. And as he embraces it, they become one. And when he collapses back into the boat with his friend, he says, it's done, it's over, I'm whole, and I'm healed. So he had embraced the darkest power, the most evil power, and become one. So it's including those energies. And yet we have to respect our process and where we're at in that. Sometimes we may need to acknowledge our demons from a distance. Sometimes we run away from them. Ged went through many months and trials before he was able to face it. Wherever we are is where we work with ourselves and with each other. And we respect what is right now. We respect the depth of conditioning. It's really deep. After many years of practice, the same old habits come up and we respect them. We can notice again that we're trying to look good or impress someone. Oh, there I go again, needing to be seen. Big surprise. There goes shame about that. Big surprise. Each time something arises and we can open to it with respect, its power lessens and it dissolves more rapidly. And as compassion develops, so does humor, and it really helps not to take ourselves so seriously. Some years ago, I was on a retreat at Santa Sabina, and I was walking in the courtyard, and I was just about to have an interview with Jack. And so I was rehearsing in my mind, telling him about this profound experience of selflessness that I just had. You know. And all of a sudden, I had an image of this huge chicken on a wall, walking up and down, going, I'm so great, I'm so great, I'm so great. <laughs> And it started to dissolve and disappear into the distance, going, I'm so great, I'm so great. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, I was able to laugh at it and, and not become identified. Or laugh at the identification. Sometimes, however, we feel that we just can't trust ourselves. 
that the grief or the fear or the anger, whatever it is that we're caught in, is too much, that we can't open to it, we can't let it be. And sometimes when that happens, it can help to take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, to bring us back to that place in ourselves where we can acknowledge our central Buddha nature. And from this place of deep refuge, we can remember and we can see that we've been identified with these deep mind states. We've started to think of them as who we are. They're just passing forces. We could imagine looking at ourselves with the eyes of the Dalai Lama, how he would see us in that moment, and perhaps acknowledging, I'm really caught in this. I'm stuck. Letting ourselves be supported. Stephen Levine said, there's a moment of trust in letting the water support you. It requires forgiveness and compassion and mercy about healing from difficulties and sorrows, not by pushing away, but by kindness. So we let the water support us. It's kind of like whales. When one of them's hurt, the others all swim alongside and physically support the hurt whale. And we have that sense then that we're not separate. We're supporting each other. And the ability to be there for another is a great gift. To be there for another without judgment is such a gift. This is from Carl Rogers. When someone really hears you without passing judgment on you, without trying to take responsibility for you, without trying to mold you, it feels damn good. When I've been listened to, when I've been heard, I'm able to perceive my world in a new way and go on. It's astonishing how elements which seem insoluble become soluble when someone listens. How confusions which seem irredeemable turn into relatively clear flowing streams when one is heard. However, even when we're in silence, we can get into judging ourselves and others or imagining that others are judging us. It's so easy to start feeling separate. And as long as we feel separate, there's an us and a them. And then there's a possibility of misunderstanding. I might see certain governments as them and I'm us, or in small ways, the hospital administration in Vancouver is them. It's really easy to get separate and to lose understanding. Ajahn Chah has this to say about judging others. Let others be. It's hard enough to watch your own mind. Why add the burden of watching another's? (laughs) If someone judges you, he says, examine yourself. If they're correct, learn from them, but don't add your judgment. If they're not correct, ignore them. Nothing is wrong, only what is, only the Dharma. 
rely on yourself. Trust yourself. It's when we have no trust in ourselves that we believe the judgments of others or our own. Neem Karoli Baba says, see only the good in people. And um, there's a story that I like to tell about um, a little old lady in my practice, a Scottish lady called Molly Grierson. And Molly um, has the wonderful ability to see the good in others, and it's kind of like a mirror. Others are able to feel their own good (coughs) through that. And some time ago, she became very ill. She'd been independent for years. She became really ill, and she was admitted to hospital. We were going to have to find a home for her. And so I was going to see her in the middle of my busy day, and I got to the nursing station where they're all harried and, and busy and usually often irritable with doctors. And I said, how's Mrs. Grierson? And they said, oh, Molly. Everybody smiled and looked happy. And so I walked into this ward, which is full of elderly women, all in different states of illness. And I went over to Molly, and she sat up, and she said, it's so good of you to come, doctor. And it's so nice of you. You're so kind to me. And um, we started to talk about her illness. And she said, I'm so sad to leave my wee house. But I saw the people in that home. And they're so kind. Everyone's so nice to me. And she's not being saccharine. It's real. And so I sat there and I began to bathe in the darshan from Molly Grierson. And um, a a cleaning person came over and was very sort of quietly cleaning the floor around her bed. And Molly leans over and she says, Oh, you make it so nice for me. I can relax now. And she just beamed at this woman. And the woman beamed back at her and straightened her shoulders and walked on singing. And it was as though people wanted to flock to receive darshan with Molly. Um, And she had that ability to draw out in people what she saw, their true nature. Um, So I was late going back to the office, but I was too blissed out to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to mind about it. So it's important also to be aware of the near enemy of compassion, which is feeling sorry for or pitying others. Rather than caring about their pain, we want to fix it. But when we do that, there's a judgment inferred that who they are isn't okay. It's disrespectful. True compassion gives us the space to fully allow the sense that we don't need to hold anything back. We don't have to be any different. Sometimes we can confuse compassion with codependence, where we give away. I know I've done that a lot, where I was trying to fix people and situations because I couldn't bear the pain. But it doesn't help others. It's disrespectful, and it didn't help me. So now when I find myself drawn to fixing, I notice the contraction in my body, and I step back. There was um, 
a patient who came to see me who'd been to her many, many doctors. She had a very complicated history and nobody had been able to fix it. And when she would come into the office with her multiple complaints, I would feel myself contract inside. And one day I really paid attention to that and my reaction and as, I, as she was going on and on. And I stopped and I said to her, it must be really hard that nobody's come up with any answers, that nobody's been able to help you. And that was what she needed to hear. And then we could relate. She didn't need me to fix it. She just wanted to be heard and to be understood and to some, for someone to see the depth of her pain and to be able to hold it without trying to change it. So through our practice, when we're here, we're planting seeds of respect, loving-kindness, compassion. And we're respectfully caring for them with our mindful attention, knowing that it takes time. Sometimes we, can tend, to ex we tend to extend our judgment towards our practice as not fast enough. Ajahn Chah says, your practice is like raising a duck. Your duty is to feed it and give it water. If it grows fast or slow, it's the duck's business, not yours. <laughs> Let it go and just do your own work. Your business is to practice. If it's fast or slow, just know it. Don't try to force it. This kind of practice has good foundation. So it's like a boat going down the river of life. The wake we leave as we go through life can be of pain and judgment and aversion. But when we begin to be mindful, present with compassion and respect, the wake we leave can be of loving kindness and peace. So may we all leave awake of peacefulness, happiness, and joy in this world. And may we hold the events of today with compassion for all beings everywhere. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.